Have you turned with me to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. I promised you a couple of stories, or more, (laughs) this evening. What I'd like to do this evening is be very, very practical. You know, Christianity is not all theology. The theology is meant to teach us how to be practical as Christians. Now when we talk about righteousness by faith, whose righteousness are we talking about? Yeah, God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, not our righteousness because we don't have any. No, anything we try to pass off as righteousness or human goodness or good works is, according to the spirit of prophecy, defiled. Defiled because it goes through a corrupt channel. Even when we're true believers, it's amazing. There is only one righteousness, and there's none of it in this world, except in Christ and in God. Now, how may we have this righteousness? God's own righteousness? I mean, try to wrap your mind around that. Whose righteousness do we want? It's God's own righteousness. And as far as I know, I had you turn to Romans chapter 3. As a matter of fact, we talked, um, Pastor Arnett, is that right? No, Mathers, Arnett Mathers. (laughs) Yeah, he spoke on Romans chapter 3 this morning. I hope you caught it. And my mind went to Romans chapter 3 also when I was thinking about God's righteousness. It's his righteousness. Can you imagine having God's righteousness? In uh, verse 19 in Romans chapter 3, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, by the way, the law can't do anything else but say, uh, you know, uh, talk to us, that's all it can do. It says that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. And so when we get close to the to the law, which is a transcript of God's character, the closer we come to it, the more faulty we appear in our own eyes because the contrast is so grave. And so if everyone in the whole world would get close to the law of God or the character of God, they would find themselves, what? Guilty. The whole world. That's what it says here. Therefore, verse 20, because this is true, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, ah, friends, praise God that there is a but now. But now, and and notice when also, now. The righteousness of God without the law, that is without what the law can do, without what you can do to keep the law, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested being witnessed or that is being approved by the law and the prophets. It's a beautiful picture as far as I'm concerned. Do you know that you may receive the righteousness of God and that you can so live your life that the law will approve of the righteousness you have? Because it isn't your righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Now, that's always a strange uh, phrase in the scriptures as far as I concerned we can have the righteousness of God by the faith of Jesus Christ I thought it was by our faith 
Why no, it's not. Do you know that your faith is not acceptable to God? It's polluted, like everything else about us. Our faith is polluted. And so God responds to the faith of His Son. They entered into a covenant together and they covenanted to save the human race. And now Jesus trusts His Father to do His part and that is to give us His righteousness. And so the righteousness we receive is by the faith of Jesus Christ. But it goes on. Even the righteousness of God which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. And so we have faith in the faith that Jesus has in His Father, and it goes all the way up the chain, and we may have what God has promised, because be Jesus, first of all, believes that He will receive it on our behalf. We may believe that we will receive it also. For there is no difference. It's a beautiful message. It's fantastic. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying all of this, I think I can safely propose that righteousness by faith simply begins by believing what God says. Would that be true? Is it even possible? Well, no, I know it's possible. It's possible. I don't even, I shouldn't even address it that way. Do you think there'll be people in heaven, people in heaven who knew nothing theologically, who simply had a very childlike faith in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Does that make any sense to you? Makes perfect sense to me. That's all that God is asking. Isn't that practical? Well, it's very practical. Now, I spent a little bit of time this week, every time that I get to a promise in the Scriptures, which seems like it's over the top. It seems like it's not even possible. I mean, uh, yesterday, wasn't it yesterday, we saw John chapter 14, verse 12, that Jesus said, The works that I do shall ye do also, and greater works than these shall ye do. Isn't that a promise? I mean, does your faith wrap itself around that? And, and are you doing greater works than these? <laughs> the, the works that Jesus did? This is what real faith is all about. I just keep going back to the centurion who said to Jesus, I am not worthy that you should come to my house. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And it says in the text that Jesus was amazed. Now it's not like you can catch Jesus by surprise, but nevertheless Jesus was amazed because he says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now who was Israel? That was God's chosen people. Yeah, God's true church in the day. And Jesus came down and he scanned the horizon trying to find faith in Israel and he found it in a pagan Roman soldier. And he was like, how does this happen? <laughs> Why should it happen? If Jesus came to your church today, would he find that kind of faith? If he came to this camp meeting, would he find this kind of faith? Ah, friends, that's the kind of faith. And it's not... <clears throat> How should I say? I was going to say it's not rocket science. It really isn't rocket science. It's just plain, simple, believing God's Word. Yeah. We also read Romans chapter 8, verse 32. With His Son, He has freely given us all things. Do you believe that you have all things? What would you do if you had all things? If the verse is true, shouldn't we, by faith, act accordingly and act like we had all things? Well, we do have all things. Now, what, we, what would we be like? What, how would we act if we had all things? 
So act accordingly. Demonstrate your faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, to receive the righteousness of God leads us to the place where we should act like we had the righteousness of God. Does that make any sense? I have a little quotation here from the Spirit of Prophecy. Um, you know, it's, you would think I took it out of context, and, but I'm not. This is a, a Spirit of Prophecy quotation that I like to use in the Lifestyle Center. And watch what it says. It's almost unbelievable. This is Second Selected Messages 288, paragraph 0. Second, second, second Selected Messages 288, paragraph 0. If the sick and suffering, you know, I'm addressing people in the Lifestyle Center, if the sick and suffering will only do as well as they know in regard to living out the principles of health, they will, in nine cases out of ten, recover from their ailments. Now, what kind of promise is that? Isn't that amazing? Now, someone will say, well, what if these sick and suffering don't know anything about health principles. Well, I want you to notice that the, the, the quotation doesn't say that God says, well, it doesn't say anything about what they know. It says only if they should do only as well as they do know. Can you see here that everything is not all um, that we reap what we sow because there is a God in heaven who interferes, well, intercepts, or he intermingles. He works with us. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> he does. Can you see it? If the sick and suffering will only do as well as they know, that's all that God is requiring. He's not telling them how much they need to know. He's telling them if they will do as well as they know. In nine cases out of ten, they will recover. We had an individual came to us uh, straight from the hospital. He'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer, that's a death sentence. They gave him something like 30 days to live, a little bit more or less, I don't know, it was around between four and six weeks to live. And uh, he said, well, phooey with this. He, he got himself out of the hospital, came straight to Eden Valley, didn't even call us, didn't even say anything. He just showed up, I'm here, I've got pancreatic cancer, I've got one month to live, do something. When I came back from somewhere, I don't know where I came back, and the man was there, and when I walked in to see the lifestyle guest, I saw him there and I thought, now, who let him in? <laughs> you know, there's something we can do for some people, but there are some things we cannot do, and we can't work miracles. And there was no doubt this man couldn't eat, he could barely walk, couldn't drive his car anymore, couldn't work, couldn't anything. He was dying. Seven years ago. No cancer today at all. It doesn't even make any sense. But he stayed for two sessions, and all that I understand is that he did all that he knew to do. And in nine cases out of ten, they're going to recover, she says. And it's true, it's true. Now, it's amazing to me. You can't cure cancer in 18 days. It doesn't make any sense. People come to us, sometimes it happens in 18 days. We've seen it happen with C.A. Murray when he came. You know, he had prostate cancer, he stayed three weeks, he went home and discovered he didn't have prostate cancer. Maybe he didn't have it to begin with, I don't know, but uh, as far as I know, he went away without it in any case. Yeah. But I tell you, and I tell those people who come to us, 
If you will come to this program, don't hope to find a miracle in 18 days. The Lord wants to teach you to change your lifestyle, to harmonize with His will. But if you will go home and stay on the program, nine cases out of ten, you will recover. That's all that I ask. Now, some people come to get ready to die. I understand all of that part. And, and you know, I'm not God. I'm not going to play God. And I can't tell who's going to get receive what from God. But I know what God says. Can we believe it? Now, this principle... Do you think it extends, you, do you think it can extend it to other aspects of life? I mean, could I say, now let me see if I can find a quotation here. If I have marriage problems, but if those who have marriage problems will only do as well as they know in regard to living out the principles of a happy married life, they will in nine cases out of ten recover their marriage. I mean, could I do that to a quotation like this? Supposing I have financial problems. Supposing I have questions about education or ministry or anything else for that matter. I believe there is a God in heaven who gives us promises and His promises are true. If we only had, if we only had faith to believe what He says. And faith is not... As a matter of fact, Ellen White says, faith is so simple, you look above it. Yeah. Somehow we think this is a, you got to do some kind of mental, spiritual gymnastics in order to get God to do something for you. It isn't that way. The gift is given. And God is scratching his head wondering why we don't take the gifts that are given. It's just that simple. Now, we're going to look at um, one of the hardest Bible promise to believe that I know of. Okay, I'll have you turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. However, I'm going to throw another Bible promise at you because you know the promise. So I'm not having you turn there. Who can tell me what Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says? See, you all know it. But you forgot three words. It starts this way. For we know that all things work together for good. And can I tell you this evening that we don't know? Oh, we know the promise. We can recite the promise. It's in the Bible. We have it in our heads. But do you know that when something bad happens, all of a sudden we don't know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord? I had a, I had a doctor friend, an ophthalmologist, come to visit us in Zambia. And he was 82 years old. He had done cataract surgery plenty before, but that was six years before. And he wanted to do cataract surgeries. And it's quite a story, and I can't tell you the whole story. He did do cataract surgery. My wife helped him, and they did a fantastic job. Well, anyhow, one day he heard me preach on Romans 8:28, And we had lunch together afterward, and he was as angry as a wet hen. That's what they say, right? It's kind of a cliche. Yeah, he was angry because he said that that is one verse in the Bible that is not true. <laughs> now, how would you like to stand up and tell somebody there is one verse in the Bible that is not true? Well, he, he was serious about this thing. He was angry because that verse was not true and he could prove it because he had been in a concentration camp in Japan for four years and he said nothing good ever came out of that. Well, friends, the poor guy... He didn't understand that if you don't believe the promise, you negate the promise. 
He didn't understand that. And so here's a promise of God he didn't believe and for him it was not true. That's just the way it works. The Bible offers us all kinds of promises but they're, they're not guaranteed if you don't believe them. That's how God operates, you know. My daughter one time called me up. I was in town. I was gassing up my car. My cell phone rings and it's my daughter from uh, Whitehorse, Yukon. And she is crying, 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 crying. God doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't hear my prayers anymore. He, 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 you know, I'm trying to buy a house and all the time, every time I go to buy a house, the deal falls through. And, you know, that was three or four houses she had tried to buy. And all, every time the deal fell th through. And she was crying and angry. And mm -hmm. I, I said, um, Julie, don't you know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. No, I don't know it because that may be true for somebody else, but it's not true for me. <laughs> well, I said, it's, it's for sure it's not true for you. Do you know why? Because you don't believe it. So anyway, she hung up. <laughs> I went home and as a dutiful father, I wrote her an email, a sermon on... All things work together for good to them that love the Lord. She called me back two or three days later, and she said, Dad? I said, yeah. She said, I repent. <laughs> and um, today she has a house, and all is, all is well. Yeah. It's hard to believe that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. It really, it really is hard to believe it. And do you know that this verse, this promise, is in... Many places in the Bible. I had you turn to Luke chapter 10. I want you to see verse 19. We're in Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 19. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And by inference, he's speaking to you and me. We're his disciples, aren't we? All the promises that he made to his disciples belong to us. Verse 19. See if you can believe this promise. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And watch this now. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's God's promise to his disciples. Is it true? Do you believe it? You've never been hurt? <laughs> You've never stubbed your toe? You've never hammered your nail? <laughs> Oh yeah, you've been hurt. How many people have not been hurt? I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. I know the answer. We've all been hurt somehow. What in the world is Jesus trying to say? Except that he sees the big picture and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The devil's going to throw all kinds of things at you. I am going to catch what he throws at you. I'm going to take what he throws at you and I'm going to turn it to your advantage. All things will work together for your good. Nothing in the end shall by any means hurt you. Go to, go to Job, Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5. And we'll see another verse like that. Verse 19 in Job chapter 5. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, Yea, in seven, there shall no evil touch thee. Now, what's the symbolism for number seven? Perfection. Perfection. Now, how many troubles is seven troubles? Well, that's a lot of trouble, isn't it? In, in Job chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Man that is born of a woman is, 
is of few days and what? Full of trouble. Now friends, if I can promise you anything today, I can promise you trouble. From the day you are born till the day you die, you will have trouble. As a matter of fact, look at verse 7. That we're still in Job chapter 5. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. That is, naturally, we will have trouble. The Lord cursed the earth for our sakes. We must have trouble. That is His design because trouble teaches us things that other things cannot teach. We will have trouble. Ah, but friends, what will God do with all this trouble? He's going to use it to our advantage, isn't He? Yes, He will. Psalms 91. Psalms 91. Now, I can't exhaust all the verses which show that all things work together for good, but I, I do want you to see a few of them. Psalms 91 is about the seven last plagues, I suppose you know. Look at verse 10 in Psalms 91. There shall no evil befall thee. This is during the time of the falling of the seven last plagues. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Well, why not? Verse 9 says so, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. If you will abide in the Lord, nothing can touch you. Do you know that Mount of Blessing, and I don't have the quotation here, but Mount of Blessing, page 71 says, If we are abiding in Christ, that means we will be in Him, He will surround us. If He surround us, nothing can get to us but through Him, and nothing gets to through him, except by permission. And if he permits anything to get to you, then it will work together for your good. Amen. What a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Supposing now you were called to go to war, you don't want to go. War is messy, we can see that. You just, uh, you know, turn the radio on, and all this PTSD that's happening in, you know, and all the suicides that are happening in the warrior's you know, in America especially. It's terrible. You don't want to go there. You want your mind messed up with, do you? No. And you don't want to see all this death, and you don't want to be killed either, so you don't want to go. However, the Lord sends an angel the night before you're to be deployed, and he says to you, listen, God sent me, I have a message for you, and the message is this. You will go to Afghanistan you will go to war, you'll be there three years, but I promise you that in three years you will come home without a scratch. Now tell me, what kind of soldier would you be? Bold. Yeah, bold. You would be brave, you would be courageous, you could throw yourself into any situation because you know, if you believe the promise, that you will go home without a scratch. You'll be decorated from the top of your head to the soles of your feet because you are so brave a soldier, right? Well, duh. <laughs> Excuse me. That's what we're reading about. This is what the Bible says. That God is with us and the devil cannot go one hair's breadth beyond what God allows him to go. And God won't allow him to go anywhere except it will work together for your good if you love the Lord. Now, you know, I don't want to be imbalanced in all of this. Do you know there are some things that don't work together for good? Oh, yeah. Everything that comes at you from outside of you will work together for good because God will take it and turn it to your advantage. But the things that come from inside of you can kill you. 
Oh, you can decide to turn your back on God. You can decide to throw away your life and dissipate it away with sin. You can, and you will destroy yourself. Did you know that? That doesn't work together for good. Oh, no. No, no. Turn to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son. I think we're at verse 16 now. We're moving along. Today we're only going to get past one verse. Luke 15, looking at verse 16. The poor prodigal is in a pig pen. In verse 16 it says, He would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, but no man gave unto him. That's what it says. And what do I say? I say, praise God. Our man has finally hit bottom. He's come to the end of his rope. He can't get any lower socially. He can't get any poorer. He can't get any hungrier. He can't get any skinnier. His clothes are rags and he stinks to the high heaven and he's tried to help himself and that didn't work and he's tried to find help from a neighbor in a far country and that didn't work and the Bible says, cursed is the man that trusts in man. Now, do you think that this was a negative experience for that young boy? Huh? Yeah, it was a terrible experience. But what is it that God, the father in the parable, or God is using to bring this young man to his senses? This very thing. Is it going to work together for his good? It will. Yeah, and he didn't even love the Lord. <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot too. Because God is working in the lives of all kinds of people. Story. As you know, my wife and I went to Africa in 1987. We spent a year in Zambia. We spent two years in Lesotho. We came back to Zambia in 1990-91. And I became the president or the director of Riverside Farm Institute in Zambia. And we asked my wife to, to manage the clinic. We had a clinic. We had a doctor and all these workers. And she had also a four-wheel drive pickup, double cab, full of medicines, which, in which she used to do... Um, bush clinics that's what we call mobile bush clinics when people there are some people in some villages so far away and the only way they could get out if they were sick was to walk out and if they might have to walk out a day or two days or three days now that's a long way to walk out if you're sick right if you really need help so she she would go with these with this pickup and she would go into these places where they were and she would pull their teeth and deliver babies or she'd bring their the, the, the pregnant ladies home to deliver them when they were ready to, to do so. She would immunize their kids. She would weigh them. She would feed them. There was a lot of famine in the land. People were dying and, and she was keeping a record of everyone and trying to keep everyone alive. It was a great work. Well, this is all background. Okay. This is, this is 1994 now. This is, we've been there six years at least. I forget what. In any case, we are going home. We're going home on furlough back to Canada. And uh, we have a, an airplane to catch, and we're a little bit late, and we're rushing out the door with our luggage. We've got to run to the airport, and as we're going out the door, a runner comes to the door with a note for my wife. It was a note from her best friend. They were working together in the bush clinics, but the note was not very nice. The note was saying that my wife is too hard, and her workers are afraid of her, and she's not doing a good job, and whatever, whatever. And I kind of feel like if this lady had come to speak to my wife 
face-to-face, personally, that she probably could have buffered some of the things she said. She probably would have buffered them. But, but you know, it's easy to, hire, to write a note, and when you're not looking in anybody's eyes, you can write what you want at the moment, in any case. And so it was pretty hard letter. Okay, so my wife took the keys off her belt, and she wrote a note of resignation, and she put it on the table, and we left. We went to Canada for three months. Now, here's the question. What happens in the heart of a woman who's been wounded, but there's been no opportunity for conflict resolution, there's been no opportunity to resolve this problem, all she can do for three months is think about it. Yeah. Is it healthy for people to just think when they've been hurt? No, no. And so, my dear wife, who... You know, I, I hate to tell a story when she's here because she doesn't remember the stories the same way I do. Her memory, <laughs> her memory's not so good. <laughs> but you know, her her self-image has never been that great, and now her self-image has suffered a blow, and so this wound is beginning to fester. I wouldn't call it depression. I've never seen her really being depressed, but it was going sour somehow. Well, after three months, we fly all the way back to Zambia. I'm in charge. I say to my wife, go back to work. Everything will be fine. And it's like, no way. You know, I don't know if you know people can be like that, right? Yeah. So she wouldn't go back to work. There she is sitting in her home. So I call her team together. We have a meeting. They're all excited because we're back. They're ready to go back to work. Everything is wonderful. But my wife says, no way. I am not going back to work. Well, now she's sitting up in our house. And she's a very active person, naturally. Just to sit there is not going to cut it. This is, this is going to go even worse than before. And I'm getting worried about this thing. And so, one day I find myself on my knees. I'm pleading with God for some kind of wisdom in this thing. How do I handle this thing? And I have in my hands a little book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 61. This, you, you're going to have to take a note of this. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 61. Take a note, you were going to need it. Okay? So, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 61, and it says there, That which you look upon as disaster is the door to highest benefits. Did you catch that? That which you look upon as disaster is the door to highest benefits. And I'm like, no, really? I mean... All of a sudden, I get a picture of what's going on here, and the Lord is telling me everything's going to be just fine. I'm preparing your wife to have a tremendous blessing. And so I go running to her, and I said to, to my wife, I said, I know what's happening. The Lord has had to cut the legs out from under you because He's about to give you a tremendous blessing. And she said, yeah, right. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I said, uh, it's true, hang on, don't do anything foolish, tremendous blessing is coming. Now, I've already said this was 1994. Do you know what happened in Africa in 1994? World news, you should know, you're almost all old enough. Hmm? Yes, you're right, I got it by someone. Yeah, Rwandan genocide, the Tutsis and the Hutus and the Hutus attempted to genocide the Tutsis, to kill all the Tutsis there. They managed to kill 800,000 people with machetes. Yeah. And by the way, another million died after that. 
Now, we don't hear that part of it so well, but we know about the genocide there. And so, as that happened, my wife said, I am going to Rwanda. And I said, great, go to Rwanda, do something. This is wonderful. And so she made her way to the United Nations office in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and she met there the receptionist, I assume that's how the picture is in my mind, met the receptionist and said, I want to go to Rwanda. And the receptionist says, what are your qualifications? And my wife says, well, I manage a clinic and I pull teeth and I, and I deliver babies and I dispense medicine and I immunize kids and on and on. And besides that, I can speak French. By the, by the way, those of you who speak French, you can speak to my wife in French. Yeah. And the lady said, wow, we need you in Rwanda right now. You're just the kind of person we're looking for. Go upstairs and see the boss. And I don't know why it's upstairs. Was it upstairs? Yep, it's upstairs. Okay. <clears throat> she went upstairs to see the boss and she said, I want to go to Rwanda. And he asked the very same question. What are your qualifications? She gave him the very same answers and he said, no, 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 no. Your certificates, your diplomas, your degrees, your paperwork. And she's like, well, I don't have any. And he says, don't even bother to apply. We can't use you. So she stepped out the door and she did what any self-respecting woman would do. What do you think she did? Yeah, that, you know, everybody knows what she did. Yeah. And so her self-image shrank just a little bit more. God wasn't opening the door for her. She was no good, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. In the meantime, these Rwandese are trickling down now from Rwanda through Zaire into Zambia and they're coming to the ADRA office. Now the man who's running the ADRA office is a Canadian from Alberta. His name was Alan Fowler. And he calls me up one day and he says, listen, he says, I've got all these Rwandese coming in on me. I need to establish a refugee camp, but I'm all by myself. Do you have anybody who can help me over there? And said, I said, mm-hmm, <laughs> I do. And so I asked my wife if she wanted to go and she went to help Alan Fowler to establish a refugee camp. But when she got to him, she says, listen, I will help you to establish the refugee camp if you will help me to get to Rwanda. And he said, oh, sure, okay. So they did a fantastic job of establishing, establishing a refugee camp. They did a marvelous job. This is wonderful. And then Alan Fowler um, announced that it was his turn to go on furlough to Canada. And so he took off for two months, and he was gone for two months. She ran the refugee camp. Everything was wonderful. But when he came back, she grabbed him by the shirt, I assume, and she said, <laughs> she said to him, listen, I told you that I would help you to start a refugee camp if you would help me to get to Rwanda. And he said, serious? Serious. Okay. So then he went and got on the phone and called the ADRA director in Rwanda. Now, you don't know, but there's a miracle in this all by itself. Because in Zambia, 1994 did not have cell phones. You might have had cell phones here, I'm not sure, but in 1994 there were no cell phones in Africa. It was all landlines. The problem with landlines is, they're, of course, they're copper, and copper is expensive, and the thieves would steal the copper lines off the telephone poles, and they would sell them back to the telephone company who would put them up, who would steal them, who would put them up, who would steal them, and that's how it was. And to get a, to get a phone call through all the way to Rwanda, that's amazing. It really was. But he got through to Rwanda, and he spoke to the ADRA director there, 
And they said, send her yesterday, we need her right now. So Alan goes over to my wife and he says, you can go, they want you right now. And by this time she's becoming skeptical and she said to him, what did you say to them? And he said, we said, he said, I told them that you're a practical nurse and that you speak French fluently. She said, Alan, I'm not a nurse, uh, but you're practical, aren't you? <laughs> practical, but I'm not a nurse. And my French is anything but fluent. Ah. So she got on the phone and she told these people the truth. And they said, we'll have an executive committee meeting. We'll let you know. And so one day goes by, no phone call. Two days go by, no phone call. Three days, four days, five days, six days. A week goes by, nobody calls. Two weeks go by, nobody calls. And again, she's feeling like God isn't going to open the door. I'm no good, he can't use me anymore, and her self-image is shrinking more. Well, friends, they actually did call back. I don't know how long it took, I don't know how much time went by, but they called back and they said, listen, we've been looking all over the world for qualified people to come and help us in the refugee camps. We can't find anyone because it's so dangerous here, people are afraid to come. And with that great endorsement, they said, you can come. So she made her way over there. And when she got there, she was asked to follow a couple, two, two German nurses for a couple of weeks or three. I don't know how many. And she was to learn from them what they were doing. She would take over from them. It was quite intimidating for her because she's not a nurse, you see. But she followed them around. Now I have to shorten the story for the, because of the time element here. By the time it is over, she is in charge of ADRA, the interim president. They made her interim president, but she's the last president they had over there. Yeah, she was in charge of, ten, of three doctors, ten nurses. She trained two dentists. She had 66 community health workers. She had a catchment of 28,000 people in the refugee camp. She had to make sure they had blankets and food and medicine, and whatever else they might need. They established a hospital in the refugee camp. They established three orphanages and the only school for a million people. Now, obviously, a million people didn't go to school there. Before it is all over, she was the ADRA director, the interim ADRA director for the Magunga refugee camp. Now, I say all of this to say this. Ask her. What is the best experience you've ever had in life? And by split second, she can say, the experience I had in the refugee camps in Goma, Zaire. How did it all begin? Well, with a little note. The little note was not the end of the world all by itself, but it became a huge disaster in her heart. That which you look upon as disaster is what? It's the door to highest benefits. Is it? Is it true? It's true. I promised you another story. I hope we have time. In uh, 2002, in the spring, I was asked to move from being the OCI Executive Vice President to being the President of Eden Valley Institute in Colorado. 
when Wayne Atwood uh, called me. Uh, Wayne Atwood, some of you know Wayne Atwood, he's in Quebec doing a wonderful work. Uh, he said, you know, I'm young, I have a young wife, young family, just they had one baby at the time, and this business of running an institu institution is very stressful, and, uh, I, you know, would you take my place? Would you be president and said, instead of me? And I said, no. <laughs> well, well, he said, uh, would you consider praying about it? And I thought, yes, I will pray about it, but I ain't coming. <laughs> well, there's a problem with that, of course. I don't know about you, but when I pray, it's serious. I can't approach God and pray and not be genuine about my prayer. And so I began to pray, and I wanted to be honest with God, and I want to be genuine with my prayer. And so I asked the Lord, is this, would this be your will? I sure hope it isn't, but would this be your will? And little by little, the Lord indicated that I should be the president of Eden Valley. Now, you know, I was leaving what I thought was a cushy job. I mean, I was the vice president, more or less the playing pastor over 70 or more institutions in 35 countries. I got to travel, and I didn't have budget problems, and I didn't have personnel problems. I had no one under me. I was just troubleshooting and sitting on boards and doing weeks of prayer and spiritual meetings and what a wonderful life it was, but three times the stipends that I was getting at Eden Valley. But you know, when the Lord calls, what are you going to do? You can't say no and, and please the Lord. And so he called and I went to Eden Valley. When I got to Eden Valley, this is the fall of 2002, the institution was down, the morale was down, most departments were in the red, things were not so good. But within six months, we were in the black. Praise God. It's not anything that I've done. It's not anything that I know to do. I'm not a businessman in the, in the, in the strangest sense of the word. I am not. But the Lord rewards. He does that. He does, you know, when you answer the call, He will bless you in the call. For three years in a row, we raised stipends at this institution by $100 a month for every worker there. So that in three years, I had raised the stipends by $300 for every person working there. Things were wonderful in, until, until I, I prayed a certain prayer. I said, Lord, please glorify yourself at Eden Valley. Eden Valley had a heyday, you understand. The place was full. The retirement center was full, the lifestyle center was full, the education program was full. It was like a busy little city. Everything was going good. They started all kinds of places in uh, overseas, and it, it was just a going concern, and it had lost a lot of ground. And so my prayer was, Lord, glorify yourself at Eden Valley, knowing that he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. I knew he couldn't do it unless he humbled me. And so I can't pray the prayer that the Lord will glorify himself when he couldn't do it unless he humbled me, unless I prayed that he would do it, do whatever it takes so that you can actually glorify yourself here. Well, I found out later in early writings, and I think it's page 115 in early writings, it says there, do not ask God to humble you. Humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God, because if you ask God to do it, it will be too painful. That's what it says. Yeah, that's a paraphrase. Yeah, but I didn't know. And so I'd asked the Lord to do it. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, everything went south. Now let me tell you something. Everything went south. South, south. 
<laughs> no, really. We had a, a retirement center there. And do you know what kind of people go to retirement center? Old people. Do you know what old people do? They die. Sure. My turn's coming. It's true. And when they would die, usually it was not a big deal to replace them. And some left for some other reasons. But we could not replace them. It came to the place where we were losing $3,000 a month. You can't go on and on and on losing $3,000 a month in one of your departments. And so we, we had to close it down. We even closed down the, re the lifestyle center for six months because nobody would come. And then we got the bright idea because Ellen White says the A, B, and C of, uh, um, that agriculture is the A, B, and C of education. What we need to do is do agriculture. This is what Eden Valley has always been known for anyways, organic agriculture. Let's do agriculture. So we invested a quarter of a million dollars. We had the money. We had a half a million dollars. We invested a quarter of a million dollars on farm equipment and we were going to, I had a crackerjack farmer, I thought, we would do a great job of this thing and the Lord would bless and He didn't. The first year we lost $100,000. The second year we lost $100,000. And so it went until there was no more money left. Now, how many people can appreciate failure? <laughs> you can appreciate failure? <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate failure. I didn't want to fail in all of this. Nobody wants to fail, you know. But it began to appear like I was going to make a huge mess of Eden Valley. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.